Hey dreamers, this is Hori G from Los Angeles, California, and listening to California Dreaming and the Overdose Just on Network. Hashtag Fred with Frame. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So let's get started. And by the way, Fred is guilty AF. Dreamers, this is the second part of a two-part series. So if you have not listened to episode 95, pause this here, go back and listen to part one first, and then come back to this one. We left off last time with the murder of DEA agent Kiki Camarena having just taken place along with his pilot, Alfredo Avalar, which led to the DEA launching their largest investigation in the administration's history. A month after the murders, their bodies were discovered buried in a shallow grave in the neighboring state of Michoacan. Our story picks up today, where arrests start being made. We're going to begin with Rafael Caro Quintero. He fled Guadalajara by plane and headed to Caborca, Sonora, south of the international border Mexico shares with Arizona. But eventually he made his way all the way down to the Central American state of Costa Rica, where he kept a mansion. Two months after Kiki's murder, Quintero was taken into custody and extradited back to Mexico. Let's pause here in our story and talk about Quintero's arrest and subsequent events. When Quintero was arrested, he was asleep in his mansion in Costa Rica and brought back to Mexico to face charges for his involvement in Kiki Camarena's murder. He would go on to be sentenced to 40 years for the murder along with some other related crimes. However, the United States then, and still to this day, does want to bring him to justice for Kiki's murder in an American courtroom and he continues to be on the DEA's list of most wanted fugitives. Quintero had been first housed at the Federal Social Readaptation Center No. 1, a maximum security facility located in Almaloya de Juarez in the state of Mexico. Despite the fact that for the crimes that he was charged and ultimately convicted of had Quintero looking at as many as 199 years in prison, as the laws of Mexico were written at the time, he could only be sentenced to a maximum of 40 years. In 2007, Quintero was transferred to Puente Grande Prison, 
another maximum security facility in the state of Jalisco, and he was transferred again in 2010, still within the same state. By the early 90s, Quintero's cartel in Guadalajara had disintegrated, and those who remained free and in charge went on to build their own trafficking syndicates. Formed were the Tijuana cartel, run by a large family, the Juarez cartel, controlled by Amado Carrillo Fuentes, and the Sinaloa cartel, controlled by leaders Joaquin El Chapo Guzman and Ismael El Mayo Zambada, while Quintero's brother, Miguel Caro Quintero, succeeded him and established the Sonora cartel, which stemmed from the Sinaloa cartel. It's widely believed that Quintero continued to control his trafficking empire from behind bars via as many as half a dozen of his family members. They used a gas station, a construction company, a shoe factory, a restaurant, a real estate development corporation, among other fronts, to launder millions of dollars. Then, in the very early morning hours of August 9, 2013, at a court hearing, the immediate release of Quintero was ordered as the result of a motion filed on his behalf by State Judge and Magistrate Rosalia Isabel Moreno Ruiz. By that time, he had served 28 of his 40 years, and the Jalisco State Court ruled that Quintero had been improperly tried in 1980 in federal court, as he should have been tried in state court instead, as he was given the 40-year sentence for murder, which is a state crime, not a federal crime. He wasn't convicted of drug trafficking, which is the federal offense, so he was ordered released. The administration of then-President Barack Obama was incensed when it learned that Quintero had been let out of prison. The United States Department of Justice expressed its disappointment at the ruling and indicated its intentions to pursue Quintero for charges pending here in the United States related to Kiki Cameron's murder. The Association of Former Federal Narcotics Agent also expressed their discontent over Quintero's release and highlighted the fact that this was just another result of the corruption that plagued the Mexican judicial system. Mexico's Attorney General Jesus Maria Caram also said that he was concerned and would look into other crimes Quintero could be charged with that were still pending. Five days after Quintero's release, a Mexican federal court issued the Office of the General Prosecutor a warrant for Quintero's arrest following the issuance of a petition from the United States government to the Mexican government. Once Mexican authorities brought Quintero into custody, the United States would have 60 days to submit a formal request for extradition. But there was a problem. The Mexican Attorney General pointed out that because of the laws of Mexico, they do not allow for criminals to be tried for the same crime in another country. Quintero could not be extradited to the United States to face the charges for murdering Kiki Camarena. Attorneys representing the United States argued that because the first trial was deemed not legitimate because it was tried in federal court instead of state court, double jeopardy is not applicable in his case. But it was a no-go. So in order for the United States to be able to bring Rafael Caro Quintero over via extradition, other criminal charges must be levied. 
and a guarantee that he not be made to face the death penalty would be in place should he ever be convicted because Mexico does not have capital punishment in its law books. Quintero has not been publicly seen since his release, though it is believed he has visited his hometown in the state of Sinaloa. In March of 2018, a massive search for Quintero was launched. Black Hawk helicopters were used to drop Marines in the mountain villages of Sinaloa, but the search turned up nothing. Rafael Carol Quintero is currently listed on Interpol's top 15 most wanted fugitives, and the United States has listed a reward in the amount of $20 million for his capture. But unlike the last fugitive we talked about on our show, Jason Derrick Brown, who has not been seen or heard from since he's been on the run starting in 2004, Rafael Caro Quintero has been heard from at least twice. He gave an interview to Proceso magazine in which he said that he was no longer a drug trafficker and all he wanted was to live in peace. He gave another interview to Huffington Post in April of last year to journalist Annabel Hernandez, who was invited to visit him at his home in Mazatlan, Mexico. He had security guards, but other than that, it was apparent that he was not living the same lavish life he had been during the height of his drug trafficking days. His home was ramshackle, he was aging, and his condition seemed frail. He also said that he was suffering some serious health issues. He is no longer in contact with his wife or children, and he reiterated that all he wanted was his peace. And he denied any involvement in Agent Kiki Camarena's death. Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, in the days and weeks following Kiki's death, stayed nearby but was hiding out in a farm outside of Guadalajara, but eventually he fled to the coastal resort town of Puerto Vallarta, Jalisco, where he was able to procure a rental home owned by the police chief of Puerto Vallarta. Along with him, he brought along an entourage of armed bodyguards. He called them pistoleros or gunfighters, and that included Jorge Godoy and Raul. His man Ramon had already walked away from his position with Carrillo. He figured his days were numbered as the DEA were aggressively hunting him down. Jorge said his main duties included making sure that Carrillo always had his basuco-laced cigarettes. And I looked it up because I did not know what basuco was. The word is derived from the Spanish word basura, which is trash. The ba comes from basura. The su comes from susilla, which means dirt. And the co comes from cocaine. Combined together, they form the word basuco. It is a derivative of the coca leaf that comes from the pasty stuff left at the bottom of the barrels after cocaine is produced. It can be combined with marijuana or tobacco and smoked. So Jorge brings Carrillo his basuco and his booze. Carrillo also has the five cassette tapes that documented the torture of Kiki. But one of those tapes he is listening to repeatedly. It is the one where a Cuban man is interrogating Kiki for a majority of the time. 
But the thing about Carrillo was he was already wanted by the DEA for some money laundering charges related to an operation he ran out of San Diego dating back to 1982. But before authorities were able to catch up with him, he fled into Mexico and it was following that that he was linked to Kiki's murder, which ultimately led to a raid on April 7, 1985 on his Puerto Vallarta Villa hideout, at which time he surrendered. He admitted taking part in what happened to Kiki, but he denied killing him. He even went so far to say that he was outraged at the things that had been done to Kiki, referring to the torturing. Carrillo was brought to trial in Mexico, convicted and also sentenced to 40 years. In July of 2016, due to his age and failing health, Carrillo was placed on house arrest having nine more years to go on his sentence. And as far as I could find online, that's where he remains today. There are conflicting reports about his age. The DEA seems to think that he was born in 1942, but other sources list his date of birth as being August 1st, 1930. If that's the case, then he's pretty old, about to turn 89 this summer. When Carrillo was taken into custody, Raul quietly hid in the kitchen behind a stove. How he did that, I'm not certain. That's just how he described it. He managed to escape the raid without being seen with only a pair of shorts on. No shirt, no shoes, nothing. He laid low on the beach, sleeping there for several nights until the raid died down. He even saw the prison bus carrying Carrillo drive by while he was hidden nearby. Eventually, he caught a ride on a bus and the driver was kind enough to allow him to ride for free. Drug trafficker Miguel Gallardo was on the lam for four years before he was captured. Kiki Camarena's investigation into Gallardo's drug trafficking enterprise was getting closer and closer to him, and it was his ranch in Chihuahua, Mexico, that had been raided as a result of Kiki's intel. Gallardo's operation was making upwards of $8 billion a year at the time that the raid took place in 1984, and of course, it operated under the protection of the Mexican government, politicians, and law enforcement and Kiki was starting to connect all of those dots between them, and Gallardo took this as being a very serious threat to his multi-billion dollar operation. So it was Gallardo who ordered Kiki's kidnapping and torture, which took place over a period of 30 hours and ended when he died as a result of a hole that was drilled into his head with a large electric drill. They shrink-wrapped his body along with Alfredo's, his pilot, and eventually buried them a state over in Michoacan. Gallardo managed to stay off the grid for a while, eventually moving to Guadalajara in 1987. He was eventually arrested on April 8, 1989, and was charged by both Mexico and the United States with kidnapping, murder, as well as racketeering, drug smuggling, and other related crimes. 
The investigation into Gallardo conducted by the United States revealed that while he was on the run, some of that time was spent living at the governor of Sinaloa, Antonio Toledo Coro's house. But he has resoundingly denied that. When questioned about the governor's association with Gallardo, all he would say was he didn't know anything about anything. And there was a fallout following Gallardo's arrest. Much of the corruption going on at the various levels in the Mexican government, from the law enforcement all the way to the top political figures, had been uncovered and exposed for everyone to see. Because of all the media attention surrounding it, a number of police commandantes were taken into custody as well, and nearly 100 officers deserted their posts. Even though Gallardo was in custody, he was still able to maintain a hold on his organization from inside by way of a smuggled cell phone. That only lasted until he was transferred sometime in the mid-90s to Altiplano Maximum Security Prison, where he no longer had his phone. Gallardo was born in 1946, so as he grew older in prison, he began to complain about his living situation and meager conditions in prison. He stayed alone in a small cell and he was never allowed to leave it, not even to go outside to the yard for recreation time, ever. I mean, a few weeks ago, I found the Canadian rehabilitation system a bit too lenient in some respects, but this seems like the extreme opposite and it sounds pretty terrible to not even be given an hour a day to go outside. Mexico's justice system has some ways about it that I don't particularly agree with either, but the jail conditions are definitely something that I think most of us can agree are inhumane. We are talking about some pretty terrible criminals here, killers and very violent individuals, but they're still deserving of their basic human rights. And do I think Mexico should be giving him some day passes? I'm going to go with no. But come on, he can't even go outside to the wreck area? That's pretty sad, to me anyway. Maybe some of you think that he doesn't deserve any bit of sunshine for the things that he did. I don't know. It's not up to me to determine what the guy deserves. It's just an opinion. So Gallardo also had complaints about his ailing health. He said that he had vertigo and that his hearing is going bad. He's lost an eye and he is suffering from circulation problems and that probably ties into him not being able to get out of that cell ever to move about outside in the yard. In 2013, he tried to petition the court to allow him to finish his prison sentence at home when he turned 70 in 2016. In 2014, he had filed a motion to request to be moved from the maximum security prison to a medium security one, but that motion was denied. However, Eight months later, towards the end of 2014, his request to be transferred to medium security was approved because of his health issues. Then, earlier this year, on February 20th, 2019, his request to be moved home to finish out his sentence was denied by the court, 
as his attorneys had not been able to provide enough proof that his life was at risk due to his health issues. Then there is the matter of Ruben Zuno Arce. He was also arrested in connection with Kiki's kidnapping and murder, but he was taken into custody in the United States. Zuno Arce was the brother-in-law of former Mexican president Luis Alvarez, and according to a 2012 article in the Guadalajara Report.net, he was also the son of a former Jalisco Revolutionary Party governor, Jose Guadalupe Zuno. Arce Zuno himself was the president of the municipality of Mascata, located in the western mountains of Jalisco. When the United States arrested him, they charged him in connection with Kiki and Alfredo's murders. He was tried in Los Angeles, convicted, and sentenced to what was amounting to a life sentence without parole, and he was sent to federal prison in Florida. The municipality that he once was in charge of was a rural area that had very rich soil, and it was perfect for what drug traffickers were looking for isolated, and land that could produce exceedingly well. And this would become the way Zuno Arce became involved with the drug cartel leaders. His family would deny that he had any kinds of ties to the cartel, and he had no ties with any narco-traficantes such as Quintero or Carrillo, nor did he have a hand in Kiki's murder. But here's the thing. Zuno Arce had owned the Lope de Vega house for years, the very place where Kiki had been tortured as many as 30 hours and ultimately killed. A couple of weeks before the kidnapping, he had sold that house to none other than Rafael Carol Quintero, and witnesses would go on to testify that not only was Zuno Arce connected to the house, he helped plan the kidnapping as well. But the article was quick to point out that these so-called witnesses were paid a lot of money for their testimony, but then everybody was. Everyone was a paid informant, and many of them would vanish into the witness protection program afterwards. Zuno Arce died at the Florida Federal Prison on September 19, 2012, at the age of 82. Though his family tried to clear what they claimed was his good name, he was nothing more than a wealthy businessman, they said, not a drug trafficker. They never were really able to, and he would remain a blemish on the prominent and politically connected family. Next up is Cabinet Secretary Manuel Bartlett Diaz. Remember him? He had the second highest office behind the presidency. He was one of the top politicians who had been in attendance at several of the meetings that had been held to discuss Kiki's kidnapping. Also, he was the one that the cartel leaders anticipated being next in line for the presidency, reminding him repeatedly that they needed him in the top office in an election, of course, that would undoubtedly be rigged. Well, if you look him up now online, he goes by Manuel Bartlett. Because of the investigative journalism of Charles Bowden and Molly Malloy, 
an article from which I gleaned a great deal of insight into the story. Witnesses placed Bartlett Diaz at those meetings when the decision was made to kidnap and torture Kiki, as I have detailed throughout these two episodes. And in order to ensure that the cartel would continue to prosper following Kiki's murder, they wanted to ensure that Bartlett Diaz would ascend to the office of the presidency. But because the DEA had openly shared their belief that Bartlett Diaz was involved in the murder, his political party refused to back him as a candidate for president. Instead, they nominated Carlos Salinas de Gortari, who became the next president. And as of today, Manuel Bartlett, as he goes by, is still active in Mexican politics. As for the other three dozen or so people who were present and or involved in Kiki Camarena's murder, they, for the most part, were murdered themselves or they ghosted. If they chose to not come up to the United States and provide testimony to Agent Hector Barrellas, chances were they were going to wind up dead too. And with that, the criminal case into Kiki Camarena's murder was closed. But one really important issue remained. What was the true reason behind Kiki's death? Why did this have to happen? Now, dreamers, from this point forward, I'm going to do the best I can to keep this story as linear as I can because it is so convoluted, you're not even going to believe some of the things that I'm going to tell you. This is where things got a bit murky for Hector. Just as he was put in charge of Operation Leenda, he began hearing murmurings about a tall white guy. The informants, several of them, referred to him, calling him Torre Blanca, the White Tower. They had seen him in Guadalajara. They had been told he was with the DFS, the Mexican FBI. But the truth was, he was CIA. This raised Hector's suspicions. He wanted to speak to Torre Blanca, so he gave him a call. He told Hector, it's not what you think, that he was following orders from higher-ups to work with the drug traffickers and the cartel guys. Hector asked him who he was told to do so by, but he didn't want to discuss it over the phone. Torre Blanca was Lawrence Harrison. He had taken some law classes at Berkeley, but he was never actually officially enrolled in the school. He had been recruited by the CIA in 1968, and he was put through their rigorous training and subsequently assigned to work in Mexico. At the onset, he was teaching English at the University of Guadalajara, and there he seemed to gravitate towards the leftist student organizations, even assisting them with some legal assignments. But Harrison observed something quite troubling. Whenever he issued a report about any of the student radicals that he was involved with, that student would end up vanishing. Before long, Harrison was hired into the DFS 
and they would be the ones to send him into the Guadalajara drug underworld, where he was assigned the duty of standing watch over large shipments of marijuana and cocaine. Because he was savvy when it came to technology, the drug capos made him their communications guy. Eventually, he was asked to live full-time at Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo's own home so that he would be available to him all hours of the day and night. At that time, Carrillo himself carried a DFS badge, though of course, it wasn't his. Harrison later explained that he had seen it. Carrillo used it to cut lines of cocaine to snort. The straightforward explanation of Lawrence Harrison is this. He was an agent with the CIA who was entrenched in the DFS and in turn, the DFS, who you know by now is working in conjunction with the drug cartel, he was sent to work as a security guard for the cartel in Guadalajara. And it seemed to be common knowledge that he was with the CIA and he was around a lot. He overheard much of what was being said between the drug guys. He was invited to all of their social gatherings. One of the informants, Raul, he witnessed Harrison hanging around Carrillo's place frequently. And according to what he saw, Torre Blanca liked to indulge in the cocaine and the basuco himself. When Harrison traveled back up to the United States in 1989 for a battery of questions regarding his findings, he told the DEA that he had come to understand that there was a very strong connection and cooperation between the Mexican government and the drug cartel. He said he had a high ranking in the DFS and he was in charge of all communications operations for the Guadalajara cartel. And I mean all the guys that we've discussed, Carrillo, Quintero, Gallardo, El Chochiloco, all of them Harrison is dialed in on. According to the article on the medium.com, Harrison saw the writing on the wall. He said he had a heart to heart with Carrillo as it was coming time that they were about to pull off the kidnapping. Why doesn't he just take the money he has and split? He's so rich already. He told Harrison there was nothing to worry about. They had a deal with the Americans. They were free to do what they wanted and the same went for the Cubans, who were an important component when it came to securing places to be able to stop and refuel for transporting the drugs. In talking to Harrison, things became crystal clear for Hector and his investigation. He had always heard those rumors about the CIA being entangled with the cartel for quite some time. When his assignment had taken him to Mazatlan, Sinaloa, Anytime he would get a solid tip about large shipments being flown in under cover of night, he'd send up his report to the DEA and they would contact him back and tell him to ignore it. So the DEA was telling their own agent calling in tips to look the other way. That was a problem, a big problem. This even continued after he was assigned to head Operation Leyenda. He was getting one report after another that planes were being commissioned by the CIA 
that were carrying actual shipments of cocaine, landing on military Air Force bases, including the bases in Homestead, Florida, and in the Tucson, Arizona area. And these same planes would head back south, ostensibly into Mexico, loaded with weapons. Hector managed to get six pilots to testify to these facts in exchange for full immunity from prosecution, and they all reported the same thing independent of one another. They were all flying thousands of kilos of cocaine into the United States at the behest of the CIA. Hector cannot fully wrap his head around what he's finding. He requested that Harrison be subjected to a polygraph examination to be administered by the Drug Enforcement Administration in Washington, D.C., but he would pass with flying colors, so Hector was told. Hector prepared his report on this anyway, in which he detailed the connection Harrison made between all the players, the DFS, the Mexican politicians, the government, the CIA, all of them connected to the drug cartel. Hector Borellis was then given a very stern order. Don't ever do that again. He was ordered to investigate the murder of DEA Special Agent Enrique Camarena, not their fellow agency, the CIA. And furthermore, he was given explicit instructions to keep all of this information regarding the CIA out of his official reports because those are considered discovery if and when things go to trial, which means they would be legally bound to provide this damning information in open court, and this was not a thing they were going to allow to happen. From that point forward, everything needed to be communicated within the DEA via internal memos. Those were classified and would not be subject to discovery. Hector was told any further memos on the matter would be forwarded to a different investigative unit and they will look into it. He needed to keep his nose out of it and stick to the case that he was given. Stop looking elsewhere. Hector Borellas followed his orders. For the remainder of his work in Operation Leanda, anything he uncovered regarding the CIA was set aside and sent via internal departmental memo to an investigation unit that he thought was going to look into his findings. And back to Harrison for a moment. He did have at least one interaction with Agent Kiki Camrena. You see, about five months before Kiki's murder, an attempt on Harrison's life had been carried out on the orders of Ernesto Carrillo. He was shot nine times in an ambush by at least 50 Jalisco State Police officers. Why did Carrillo try to have Harrison assassinated? Because he thought he was stealing from him. Kiki paid Harrison a visit while he was laid up in the hospital recovering to question him about the shooting. But Harrison couldn't talk. Jalisco State Police were guarding him and his hospital room. He could not answer any questions. If he did, he was good as dead. 
Harrison would head back to the United States for good following Camarena's death. Before he went, though, he had a long talk with two DEA agents and he had three things to tell them. One, the Guadalajara cartel had nothing in the way of any information about the DEA or Kiki. They had no way of finding out it was Kiki who was causing them to lose all of their drugs and freezing their assets. Someone had to have informed them, specifically someone involved in the investigation who knew and had firsthand information that it was Kiki and was willing to go to the drug cartel guys and tell them specifically who Enrique Camarena was and what he was doing, that he was the one screwing them over. He was the one that they wanted. There was no other way these guys could have known otherwise. Two. Korea was under the impression that they were only going to question Camarena, not kill him, that it was Quintero that went against the plan and murdered him. Three, none of the other people that he's ever interacted with, not law enforcement, not the drug cartel leaders, nobody ever made tape recordings of anyone doing anything ever, and he was pretty sure most of them wouldn't even know how to operate a recording device. But either way, he was clear about this. Because they taped the interrogation and torture of Kiki, they had to be doing it for someone else because they had never done it before. And he was certain that someone else was the CIA. The CIA aren't going to do it themselves. They're going to find people to do it for them. They have their own connections, of course, to make it happen. Meanwhile, the head of the DEA, Jack Lawn, in the midst of leading Operation Leyenda, he asked Hector if he could find and bring Dr. Umberto Machain to the United States so he can be made to face trial for his part in Kiki's torture and death. And if you recall, I mentioned that Dr. Machain was called in to assess Kiki's condition. Then he was asked to help prevent Kiki from dying so they could continue their torturing and interrogating of him. Hector's first attempt was to pay off some law enforcement officials in Mexico to assist him in tracking down and apprehending Dr. Machain, but that never came to fruition. But then all of a sudden, in April of 1990, a small airplane landed at an airport in El Paso, Texas. The door opened and none other than Dr. McChain was shoved out of the plane onto the tarmac and Hector was there waiting to take him into custody. He had apparently been captured in Mexico by bounty hunters looking to collect on the $100,000 reward that the United States had on Dr. McChain's head. But the DEA would never admit that they had offered any reward for his capture. A federal grand jury in Los Angeles indicted McChain in 1990 for his role in Kiki's kidnapping, torture, and murder, along with his pilot, Alfredo. He was tried in 1992, but after the prosecution presented its case, the defense motioned the court for an acquittal on the grounds of insufficient evidence to support a verdict of guilty, and the district court judge agreed and granted the acquittal citing that the bulk of the case was based solely on suspicions and hunches and lacked solid evidence, and the prosecution's case was wild speculation. 
Dr. McChain ended up suing for a number of violations of his rights related to being quote-unquote kidnapped by these bounty hunters, held in custody, and taken to trial for Kiki's murder. He named several defendants, including the United States and four DEA agents. The court ruled in his favor and awarded him $25,000. And as you can imagine, all of this is causing a lot of problems in terms of the diplomacy between the United States and Mexico. In the wake of the hoopla with Dr. Machain, the new president of the United States at the time, Bill Clinton, he was concerned over the DEA's involvement with Kiki's kidnapping so much so that he talked to the Mexican president about it. Hector started getting word from his connections in Washington, D.C. that the new administration was thinking about extraditing him to Mexico. If that were to happen, Hector would end up dead in a shallow grave in some unfindable place in Mexico, too. Hector had compiled stacks of those internal memos detailing his knowledge and findings of the connection between the CIA to the drugs, between the CIA to Kiki Camarena, and the CIA to the bosses of the Guadalajara cartel. Hector briefed his bosses, outlining the relationship that influential Mexican political leaders had with the drug traffickers and to Kiki's murder. But when he brought up Cabinet Secretary Manuel Bartlett Diaz, the DEA brass, his bosses, they laughed at the absurdity of what he was telling them. There was no way a guy as high up as Bartlett Diaz was colluding with any of these low-life criminal drug bosses. Hector had procured at least three witnesses who were present while Kiki's kidnapping was being planned. They listed who was at those meetings, and a name that appeared on all of their lists at numerous meetings was Manuel Bartlett Diaz, along with other high-ranking officials and Cubans that worked for the CIA. The Dictorate of Federal Security, the DFS, they were up to this to their eyeballs. And dreamers, you know what all of this added up to? Agent Hector Bareilles was doing a better job than the DEA expected him to. And he was going to pay for it. By late 1993, Hector came under an internal investigation with the DEA, accused of encouraging witnesses to provide untruthful testimony. In other words, Hector was being accused of having his informants commit perjury. It was later revealed that some of the witnesses lied earlier to Mexican authorities, including Jorge Godoy, by downplaying their involvement, by leaving out certain names out of fear of retribution. But the stories changed when they were brought to the United States, taken to safe houses and ultimately placed in the witness protection program. Then, Hector was being threatened with extradition to Mexico to face charges for kidnapping Dr. Machain, a person his own boss had demanded be brought to the United States to face prosecution. Hector knew that they were gunning for his career. It led him to drown his sorrows in booze. And for whatever reason, he did what I think was some sort of self-punishment. He had a set of Kiki's torture tapes. He'd have them at home and listen to them over and over again. 
Kiki, crying in pain. He told the medium.com journalists. They'd ask him, do you want to go back to your family? Yes, yes. Then you have to cooperate. Please, Comandante, don't hurt me anymore. And this would be followed by screams. Dozens of times, Hector listened to his screams. The life that Hector had dreamed for himself was disintegrating right before his eyes. And then he heard from a friend from the past. Mexican Federal Police Commander Guillermo Gonzalez Calderoni, the one that he had befriended in that blood-covered cornfield. While Hector had gone on to be assigned to Operation Leyenda, Calderoni had gone on to become the personal hitman for the Mexican president. He was personally responsible for assassinating those in charge of leading the opposition as they were headed into Mexico's 1988 election. And he was the channel through which the Mexican president interacted with the drug cartel. His job lasted late into the 80s, but the president began to feel as though Calderoni was laundering too much drug money. I mean, I suppose that's to be expected, but by that time, estimates to Calderoni's worth exceeded a billion dollars. And that is a lot for a police commander turned hitman, especially in the 80s. Calderoni eventually did leave Mexico and came to the United States, bringing about half of his fortune with him. Mexico tried to bring him back in 94 to face charges, but Hector actually came to court on Calderoni's behalf and vouched for him. And this made Hector's superiors at the DEA very, very upset. Because of Hector's testimony, the judge tossed Mexico's request to have him extradited. After all this, of course, Calderoni was very grateful for Hector's help. He decided to share some important information that he had. He knew about Kiki's case. He told Hector that the money that was frozen in Operation Padrino, that was the catalyst for Kiki's kidnapping. That money was not only going to the drug guys, Quintero, Carrillo, etc., but a big chunk of it was being siphoned into acquiring weapons, equipment, materials, and other provisions for the Nicaraguan Contra Army. Now let's stop here and discuss the Contras because understanding that is going to tie this whole story together quite nicely. The Contras which is short for the Spanish word that means counter-revolution, consisted of a number of right-wing dissident groups that were supported and funded by the United States from the late 70s all the way into the early 90s. They fought in opposition of a socialist Nicaraguan government. Eventually, by the late 80s, all the smaller factions united mostly into one large group that formed the Nicaraguan resistance, and they waged war against the government. In doing so, they systematically employed terrorist-style tactics and violated human rights on an enormous scale, and this was their strategy in order to advance in the war. Those who backed the Contras attempted to downplay the acts of terrorism and human rights violations, 
particularly the administration during President Reagan's two terms in office, which coincided with the majority of the Contra movement. The Reagan administration launched a propaganda campaign in order to manipulate public perceptions to view the Contras in a more favorable light. The United States government was providing military and monetary support for the Contras, starting from their inception and their success heavily relied on it. The United States played a pivotal role in financing, training, arming, and guiding the Contras over a continuous period of time. The Contras would not have been able to engage in a sustained military operation if not for the United States. Now, all of this support for the Contras was a part of the Reagan Doctrine, which was intended to provide military support for any anti-Soviet movement or opposition groups to Soviet-supported communist governments, as the United States had been embroiled in an ongoing Cold War between the United States and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, or the USSR. But then Congress outlawed any further funding of the Contras, cutting the Reagan administration off from being able to legally send military or financial support. The United States was essentially in a war by proxy in Nicaragua, and if they couldn't get money to them, the Contras would lose, and the U.S. would lose by proxy. And this is where all of this comes together, dreamers. Calderoni told Hector, get far away from the Kiki Camarena case. Back off. The CIA killed Camarena. They were working with the drug cartel to funnel money to the Contras, illegally since funding was outlawed by Congress. The Cuban guy, the one with the CIA connections to the Contras, he was working with the drug bosses involved in Kiki's murder. Everybody was connected. Are we following that, dreamers? Kiki Camarena led Operation Padrino, which froze the various bank accounts of several drug cartel leaders. Some of the money was being funneled to the Contra effort in Nicaragua. The money needed to come from third-party foreign countries through the CIA covertly because Congress had outlawed any further funding of the Contra effort, which was a movement that was very, very important to President Reagan. If they could not get money to them, their rebel movement would fail and the Soviet-supported communist government would take over, something that the Reagan administration was vehemently opposed to and was willing to circumvent Congress blocking further funding by other hidden means. The Central Intelligence Agency had their hands in the Mexican drug trafficking business in order to fund the Contra movement in Nicaragua. That, along with the Iran-Contra scandal, if anyone remembers that, that too was an effort to clandestinely fund the Contras as well. The Reagan administration secretly facilitated the sale of weapons to Iran, which at the time was under an arms embargo, which meant they were not allowed to be sold weapons. The money made from the sale was going to be used to fund the Contras too. Now, the United States was not just going to outright say that they were going to sell arms to Iran. So, 
It was done under the guise of attempting to free seven American hostages being held in Lebanon. The plan was this. Israel was going to send the weapons to Iran. Then the United States was going to replace all of Israel's weapons for which the United States would be paid by Israel. But a later investigation into this revealed that the Reagan administration's secret arms sales began before the hostages were taken, which completely blew President Reagan's arms for hostages excuse out of the water. Then, in 1985, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North sent a whole bunch of money from the proceeds of the sale of the weapons to Iran to the Contras. But whether or not Reagan knew of this or approved of it has never been proven, and no evidence that he knew was ever uncovered. Eventually, after a congressional investigation, 14 of Reagan's administration were indicted and 11 were convicted for their part in the Iran-Contra scandal, but of course, not Reagan himself. All 14, indicted and or convicted, would eventually be pardoned in the final days of President George H.W. Bush's term, who was Reagan's vice president at the time. So that's pretty deep, isn't it? The ripple effect of this story took us all the way to the White House. That's who the CIA and the DEA ultimately wanted and needed to protect. And there were so many layers, layers upon layers of individuals and entities between the White House and the torture house. How crazy is that? To Hector, there could only be a few reasons why Kiki was kidnapped and murdered. First, he thought it was a reaction to Operation Padrino. Wiretaps were being set up all over the world, including Bolivia, Mexico, Peru, Colombia, Spain, and the United States. In all of the DEA's warrants and related paperwork regarding the frozen accounts and seized money, the informant had only been listed as a codename SOI, which stood for Source of Information. The cartel leaders were certain that somebody was leaking information. But the truth was, Operation Padrino was using the surveillance capabilities of the NSA. And let me stop here and quickly explain what the NSA is for those who don't know. It stands for the National Security Agency, and it is the national level intelligence agency of the United States Department of Defense. It handles global monitoring collecting and processing information and data for foreign and domestic intelligence and counterintelligence purposes. They also protect the United States communication networks and information systems, and they do so by utilizing clandestine measures. It started off as a code deciphering unit during World War II, but then President Truman made it officially the NSA in 1952. The NSA collects mass amounts of data globally. They bug and tap electronic systems in order to do so. The NSA use attack software to damage nuclear weapons programs. They've installed eavesdropping devices in presidential palaces and embassies. And many of you may be familiar with Edward Snowden, who is a former NSA contractor 
when he famously revealed to the public the agency's many secret surveillance programs with documents that showed that the NSA tracked, intercepted, and stored the communications of over a billion individuals around the world, including U.S. citizens, along with millions upon millions of people's movements by way of cell phone metadata. So it was the power of the NSA that enabled those in charge of Operation Padrino to find and drain those bank accounts of the drug cartel. Those cartel guys, they did not know this was how the United States gained their intel. But because Kiki was the one who came up with the idea to attack the money instead of the plantation fields, they figured he would be the person they needed to interrogate when it came to who was leaking the locations of their bank accounts and exposing them to be frozen and taken. But here's the thing about that. What is heard on the audio tapes of Kiki's torture are only questions involving DEA agents and the large marijuana bus plantation in Chihuahua. They didn't ask him about money being seized from the various bank accounts around the world. Also, when the DEA eventually got their hands on those tapes and listened to the questioning, they did not hear Max Gomez slash Felix Rodriguez's voice anywhere, despite the fact that eyewitnesses to the interrogation insisted he was there posing some of the questions. This had Hector's attention directly aimed at those tapes. When Carrillo was hiding in Puerto Vallarta following Kiki's murder, Jorge Godoy was with him. His job was to bring Carrillo his basuco and his cognac. According to Jorge, Carrillo was in possession of all five of the torture tapes. But he noticed something. Carrillo was repeatedly listening to one of the tapes in particular, many, many times over. There was someone who was distinctively sounding Cuban on that tape, interrogating Kiki. When Carrillo was finally taken into custody as a result of the federally-led raid, those tapes were taken into custody too. But at some point, the five tapes became three, and what was recorded on those tapes didn't match the transcripts they were given and had some other tape recordings on them. Hector demanded to be given the tapes that went along with the transcripts, and he wanted the missing tapes too. He knew that Carrillo had had them, but he quickly got shut down by the federales. It was a matter of Mexican national security. He was not going to get those tapes. Drowning deep in Operation Leyenda, Hector took being denied those tapes to mean one thing that the CIA was surreptitiously supplying the Nicaraguan Contras, which led to the activities of Oliver North that I mentioned earlier with his diversion of funds to the Contras, and all of this was being done at the behest of President Reagan and his agenda. Oliver North vehemently denied that there was any connection with the Mexican drug cartel or that any money came from their operations to finance the Contras. But North famously shredded thousands and thousands of documents in November of 1986, but he didn't shred everything. There were a number of notebooks where he logged as many as 15 passages discussing the subject of drug trafficking. 
But what North would eventually go on to say and testify to at the congressional hearings has been the story that everyone has chosen to go by, and no amount of findings of Operation Leanda were going to change that. When Hector first went public with his findings in late 2013, the United States had no comment. But all of this was splashed across headlines in Mexico. The head agent who originally put Hector in charge of Operation Leanda, Jack Lon, basically said the things Hector was claiming were fairy tales. When the authors of the article in the medium.com reached out to Jack Lon about this story, he denied ever having any contact with Hector while Operation Leanda was underway, and he said that Hector was never in charge of the operation to begin with though there's plenty of documentation that would say otherwise. The things that Operation Leanda brought to light have been deemed not credible, and the bottom line is those it mattered to decided it was too fantastical to be true. Anything regarding connections between the Mexican government, the DFS, or what have you, and the CIA was all kept out of all of the trials. The version of the truth that has been forwarded to be taken as gospel is this. The United States and the CIA have absolutely nothing to do with drug trafficking or the Mexican drug cartel. High-ranking Mexican officials and politicians would never co-mingle with the lowlives who tortured and murdered Agent Enrique Camarena. What the United States was involved with in order to funnel money to support Contras was an arms-for-hostages deal in the Iran-Contra affair. There was no way that the CIA would embed themselves within the DFS, who in turn supplied cartel bosses with security personnel who allowed the drug trafficking operations to flow unhindered. And why is this? Because the information Operation Leanda uncovered from three specific individuals, Jorge, Ramon, and Raul, who were these men? Well, they were crooked Mexican cops who incriminated the leaders of their country. Who is to be believed? Hector told the investigative reporters for the medium.com this in part. I saw our own government was corrupt and involved in the drug business. How do you think I felt? Our government bringing cocaine in here? It destroyed me. It made me totally disbelieve in our government. I neglected my family. I missed birthdays. I was a terrible father. And for what? My son killed himself. The last thing he said before he pulled the trigger in front of his own kids was nobody loves me. I was never home. And when I was home, I was drunk. I would not do the Camarena case again. It destroyed my career. The DEA, the administration for which Hector had worked for, had gone so far as to continue to try and have him extradited to Mexico to face the charges that he kidnapped Dr. Umberto Machain. What they tried to do was turn him into a dirty agent as well. Enrique Kiki Camarena Salazar was born July 26, 1947, in Mexicali, Mexico. He was a United States Marine from 1970 to 1976. 
Following his military service, he became a police officer in Mexicali, but he also worked as a special agent for the Imperial County Narcotic Task Force in Calexico, California. In 1975, he became a DEA agent working out of their Calexico offices. Two years later, he transferred to the Fresno office. And then in 1981, he was assigned to the DEA offices in Guadalajara, Mexico. He was murdered on February 9th, 1985. He was 37 years old. He was survived by his wife, Geneva, and their three boys, who were 11, 6, and 4 at the time of his death, and they lived there in Guadalajara with him. Geneva now lives in Chula Vista, California. According to an article in the San Diego Tribune in 2010, she said that she and Kiki were high school sweethearts, both having grown up in Calexico. In 2004, she retired from her work as a skincare consultant and formed the Enrique S. Camarena Foundation, along with other retired DEA agents and her eldest son, who was also named Enrique, who was at the time a deputy district attorney in the South Bay area of Southern California, but today is a superior court judge in San Diego. Geneva's time is spent spreading substance abuse awareness in schools across the country. The money raised by her foundation is put towards six scholarships awarded annually to high school seniors across the country, and she continues to champion the Red Ribbon Week campaign. In Calexico, in the wake of Kiki's murder, they wore red ribbons in his honor, and it has since become a tradition in schools during one week in October, each year designated as Red Ribbon Week, to continue to don these ribbons. Today, numerous buildings across the country bear Camarena's name. The DEA offices in San Diego, a road in Carmel Valley, the El Paso Intelligence Center in Texas, the Camarena Library and Middle School in Calexico, an elementary school in La Jolla, Texas, and a tiny school in Peru named Enrique Camarena School. Enrique Camarena was murdered by a group of henchmen working on orders from their bosses, their bosses' bosses, and so on. From how high up the system was that order sent down? And how do you know for certain when the orders came from everywhere, but nobody is willing to acknowledge it even exists? Thank you for listening to this 96th episode of California Dreaming. And before I sign off, we have some birthday shout outs. The second half of June. Now, I posted in the Facebook group because I was looking for somebody who I got a notification from, made a comment that their birthday was June 30th, which is three days from now. But I have not been able to find their comment. So if your birthday is on June 30th, please message me or email me and let me know so I can add you in on the next birthday shout outs. Okay, let's start from where we left off. Happy birthday to the following people. June 17th, April G. June 18th, Anna G. And her handle is on Instagram at Holy Moly. 
June 19th, Kelly M. and Abby D. June 20th, Miranda H., Millicent T., Maka S., and Margaret S. June 22nd, Amy M. June 23rd, Michelle H. and Rachel M. June 24th, Bridget C. June 25th, Valerie J. and Melissa H. June 26th, Susie L. and Linda G. The 27th, of course, is our anniversary, which an episode about that is coming up shortly as well. And June 28th, Elaine F. and Sasha S. Happy birthday to all of you. And now we're going to close out this episode of California Dreaming. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any of the others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, other news events, TV shows we enjoy, documentaries that we've watched, and books that we've read. Whatever you find that you would like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with the mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to all people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. Please visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. There you can find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, and you have noticed that I've added a couple more designs finally. Get your t-shirt or your mug or your hoodie. Take a picture of it and post it in our group or on Instagram for everybody to see. Or if you would like to email us with your feedback and comments or questions, or just to let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.